The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I'm delighted to welcome Zenobia Barlow. She is the executive director and co-founder of the Center for Ecoliteracy. She is the co-editor of Ecological Literacy Educating Our Children for a Sustainable World, and her new book with Daniel Coleman and Lisa Bennett is called Eco-Literate, How Educators Are Cultivating Emotional, Social, and Ecological Intelligence. Welcome, Zenobia. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Well, I received a copy of your book, and I should let our listeners know that I I love the Center for Eco-Literacy. I received a copy of the book, and I thought immediately, we've got to talk about this. This is what our world needs right now. And because of my work in public health, I feel or sense an urgency about our environment right now. And I want you to explain to our listeners first, what is your definition of eco-literacy? Mm-hmm. Well, we keep expanding that. My board keeps going like, wait a minute. So, well, ecological literacy means being literate in the ways in which nature sustains life. And so we've also applied that to become a, a description of a model for a very lively form of education. And how did you decide, you're a co-founder of the Center for Eco-Literacy, how did you come to this? <laughs> well, it's a long and circuitous path. In some ways I would say that for me this is very similar to a spiritual practice. It's uh, really seeing the world as alive and and life as sacred and being able to breathe life into education and to and to honor this magical process of learning mm. but many roads led here you know indigenous wisdom and publishing and systemic thinking and you know sort of an intellectual and a spiritual journey that led to this integration mm-hmm. i met a teacher at a film festival. It was a film festival for, it was the Wild and Scenic Film Festival. And I met a teacher in the audience and she said, you know, at my school, children are throwing away unopened plastic bottles of water. And she says, nobody seems to notice except for me. And I assured her that I shared her sense of shock and disappointment. And that's why we need books like this. How do we reconnect children to their environment to help them see how we're all connected and how we have a great need to protect the earth? Yeah, you know, in the 20 years that we've been involved in education, we've always convened educators and uh, we've created quiet, respectful, beautiful places for them and served them lovely food and listened to them and Many people who join that circle bring that same sentiment. And I think, you know, allowing ourselves to notice and to act on that awareness. Mm -hmm. I think that teachers today are under such great pressure 
to teach a curriculum, to get high scores, to get the funding. Schools are woefully underfunded. Teachers are overworked. Their classrooms are full, oftentimes with children who are not as ready to learn as we would hope. Do you think nature has a role in the classroom, and how can we get nature back in, considering all the constraints that teachers face today? Well, we work with schools and school districts in a variety of settings, in urban and suburban and rural schools. And I've seen, I mean, there's from from a seed in a cup on a windowsill to, you know, one-acre production gardens, I've seen, you know, just every possible kind of way of bringing life into and breathing life into education. So I think it does have a role to play. I think it's inherently enlivening and gives kids something genuine and authentic to grapple with and to the degree that we can have kids have hands-on experiences it informs their learning in a very powerful way well and as you mentioned in the book there's even data showing that it improves academic performance which of course is what we all look for at the end of the day right because this is going to prove that our work has merit if we can raise those test scores. And lo and behold, immersing children in the beauty of nature seems to do that. Well, one of our principles is that the real world is the optimum learning environment. And in California, we have to laugh, the curriculum is measured in seat time. Uh-huh. But that might be the least enriched learning environment. So, yeah, if kids can, I mean, we know in the last couple of decades, a great deal of research has been conducted on how the brain learns. And through the hand is a very important part of the learning process. And so genuine, holistic engagement, it's transformative. And of course, it has implications for test scores. If if what the what's being scored is sufficiently holistic to stand as an accurate measure. Mm-hmm. Now, you describe how this book connects emotional and social intelligence with ecological intelligence. And right at the very beginning of the book, you've identified five practices of emotionally and socially engaged eco-literacy. And I'd just like to go through those with you and have sure. you make you know some comments. So the first one is, I love this one, I have to tell you, too. The first is developing empathy for all forms of life. Right. Well, you know, when we shift our attention and understanding from looking at something as an object that we're completely separated from to understanding it as something to which we're related, it opens all kinds of perceptual capacity in ourselves. And these five, of course, can happen in any progression. Sometimes you have to start somewhere else and move to empathy. But an empathic capacity is essential to operate successfully in life. Do you think it's innate or does it have to be developed? I think it has to be trained out of us. Mm -hmm. I think we are essentially empathic beings. I had a conversation with Theo Colburn this summer, 
And we were talking about environmental toxins, especially endocrine disruptors. Yes. And that, of course, is her field of work, and she's a brilliant woman. She's got an endocrine disruption center where she compiles data. And she said that what's happening with our exposure, or what she believes is happening because we're exposed to so many endocrine-disrupting toxins in our environment, that the effect of those chemicals on the brain is that it is leading to a generation that does not have a capacity to feel empathy. Oh, wow. I was actually quite moved by her assessment because at the end of the day, you know, I've, I've gotten to the point in my life where I think, okay, what is the one thing I really want to leave behind? What it, I would like to increase empathy on our planet among human beings for each other and for, as you mentioned, for all forms of life. Well, that's a terrifying specter. Mm-hmm. that we would lose our capacity uh, because I think it it's what makes us essentially humane. And, you know, I'm so, as I watch kids and my own self get so gadget attached, I wonder if we're losing that capacity to perceive others and to feel for them. You know, it's like we're so busy racing to get somewhere with that that people become obstacles and everybody who's walking around on the street is looking down at their iPhone that we're kind of losing this capacity. But I think we, I mean, if we don't so completely chemically alter ourselves, any time that we're in a crisis, I mean, part of what I uh, observed both in the recent Sandy hurricane and in the Katrina catastrophe and in what happened in Japan is that when we shift off of our commitments to getting places on time and and pay attention to one another and are thrown into situations with one another, our humanity returns. And Mm -hmm. people really do have this capacity to reach out to one another. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to the second point under the practices, and that is embracing sustainability as community practice. Well, you know, hats off to, I have to bow to someone who's really influenced our work, and her name is Jeanette Armstrong, and she's a Native American wisdom keeper in the Okanagan, and she's really taught us and shown us and modeled for us that we do not live in isolation and that sustainability is essentially a cooperative process, and she means cooperation, like, beyond certainly beyond the bumper sticker, but like that our enduring, our capacity to survive individually and collectively is solely based on our capacity to genuinely, fully, and wholly cooperate with one another, that that we're in this together. And, I, you know, I think we know this from observing other species, but we, and particularly Americans, sometimes think of sustainability as a philosophy, but it's what we do collectively. It's it's the rut that we make, you know, in our in the patterns of our behavior. That's what sustainability is. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that interconnectedness of all. And I think it's so easy in our society to separate ourselves. And as the stories in the book unfold, you can see how people who were once disconnected become reconnected and more whole. And we'll get into those later. But the third point 
under the practices of emotionally and socially engaged eco-literacy is making the invisible visible. Mm -hmm. Well, so many of our impacts are not perceivable in real time or the way that we are impacting things happens at such a distance that we're, we don't have a feedback loop. But I've been, I don't know, I don't want to say laughing, but I've been observing that Shell this week, for example, has decided that perhaps drilling at sub-zero temperature in the Arctic in the winter might be beyond their technical capacity. And they've pulled out of the Arctic uh, after a couple of hugely embarrassing and expensive, in quotes, accidents. So we're just seeing increasingly uh, mountaintop mining might not look so bad until you get up above it and see the the catastrophe. So some of this ecological understanding requires ways in which to make what it was previously invisible, visible to us, so that we can be moved to empathy. Mm. You know, I like to talk a lot about ripple effects mm-hmm. in this vein. And to explain that we're all going to have an effect, we're all going to have ripple effects, but it's impossible to know the extent of them. And to me, when I read you know, Making the Invisible Visible, sometimes it's very difficult to even imagine what some of those far-reaching ripple effects might be, but it's always a good idea to think about them. And that takes us to the next point, which is anticipating unintended consequences. And I think let's hope that that was behind the shell decision. Yeah. But boy, isn't that something that we're not doing enough of today? Well, you know, a lot of our work is based on the theory of living systems. So we know that living systems are like complex and dynamic, and they're not like machines. So I think we just have to realize we absolutely can't anticipate the consequences when we set certain things in motions. When I mean, we started, you and I were talking about the Mississippi River and how the Delta suffers the consequences of everything upstream being dumped into the Delta. And so, you know, when you begin to think about downstream consequences of upstream behaviors, you just you can't predict the cumulative exponential impacts of isolated phenomena and if you shift into the precautionary principle uh, instead and just realize that things will be set in motion and some of it could be positive and some of it could be negative but we're not able to control complex systems and we should approach things in a more humble way. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, listeners, we are speaking with Zenobia Barlow. She is the executive director and co-founder of the Center for Eco-Literacy, and we are talking about a book she wrote with Daniel Goleman and Lisa Bennett called Eco-Literate, How Educators Are Cultivating Emotional, Social, and Ecological Intelligence. The fifth practice of emotionally and socially engaged eco-literacy is understanding how nature sustains us, and it seems as if we take that for granted. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that, I mean, we could, I asked Fritjof Capra, who's one of our founders and who's a systems theorist, it's like, okay, tell me, you know, how can I say something about systems thinking in the shortest amount of time? 
And he said if he had to choose one word, he would say that nature sustains life through communities. So you could say that ecosystems are communities, or you could say that it's the web of life. And so when you understand life as a web, then you're back to some of these other principles. Uh, if we're part of a web, then it makes it easier to understand why empathy is the appropriate response and how embracing sustainability is a community practice because we're all in this woven web together. So, you know, understanding how nature sustains life and then designing human systems in a way that attempts to harmonize with those. We would have not removed, for example, the barrier islands around New Orleans if we had been really tracking with uh, how nature sustained that complex set of ecosystems. Mm-hmm. I'm tempted to jump to the story about New Orleans since you brought that up. However, <laughs> I thought you'd want to talk about food and uh, community. Well, I think we are. Uh-huh. but in an eco-literate sort of way. Yes. You know, and part of it, and one of the things that you mentioned here is this idea of how do we communicate. There are so many us versus them situations when we talk about food and agriculture, for example. Mm-hmm. And I love the way you describe in bringing people together to have a dialogue, the first thing we want to do is to find a place in conversations where we agree on something. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to be talking about, well, do we want industrial agriculture or do we want organic agriculture? Do we want processed food or do we want whole food? You can be at a table in a community of nutritionists or food scientists, food systems people, and there is a lot of debate and there's a lot of us versus them. And I look to your book as a way to find common ground so that we can move forward for the sense of the earth, for the better, mm-hmm. the better situation of the earth and the children that we leave to live beyond us. And so I liked fostering dialogue through commonality, but I also liked the way you said reaching people on the human level through stories. And I thought I'd launch into some of the stories on food using that line. But when did you come to the realization that stories were really at the heart of change? (laughs) Well, I think stories are one way. Well, stories embed whole patterns of meaning, and they're emotionally charged, and they're, what can I say, portable. So, you know, you can embed an entire system of understanding in a narrative line and carry it around with you, and people grasp what you mean. Mm-hmm. I They're agree. They're transformative in that way. And they practice empathy. We, we see ourselves in the morality play, if you will, that, I don't know, it's just, it seems to be a human capacity and a way of being in community with one another. I was moved by the chapter one. I opened it up, Terry Blanton and Wendell Berry. Yeah. Lessons from a coal miner's daughter. And I was really, of course, water is the most important nutrient. So we are talking about food nutrition, really. Mm-hmm. But this idea that a whole community would be poisoned via their watershed is one that really resonates with me on so many levels. And it was the story of young people waking up to how water is contaminated and then visiting the 
mining company that says to the kids, well, you all use electricity. You don't want to give up electricity, do you? Right. So these situations that children are given to help them see how everything is interconnected, I think, is very important. And I, I loved that particular chapter in the book. Yes, and of course, Wendell Berry is, I don't know, I mean, he's like one of the, our great heroes and mm-hmm. and eloquent writers. It was so charming. You know, Wendell took his toothbrush and yeah. decided to sit in the governor's office and practice a little very civil disobedience to stand and I've forgotten exactly what he says but he you know he says it's it, you know it's like it's not whether or not we succeed it's that it's asking what's the right thing to do that's right uh, and you know and in education and science one of the habits of mind that's advocated in the science standards in most states is for young people to look at trade-offs and some of the trade-offs that we're handing kids are sort of triple double binds. Uh I mean there there's a point at which you can't choose between water and and energy. There's more informed decisions to be made, but you know some of that is making the invisible visible. When kids are given, I mean sometimes there are websites for example where you can see how much electricity you're using. And when you think of, I mean I we've sort of had this image in our mind that you know after visiting those sites that you just think of having a very long electrical cord to Virginia, for example, um, and that somehow what I'm doing over here is demolishing mountaintops, it makes me more compassionate, more empathic, more uh, more conscious of the implications of my behavior and our collective behavior. And I think that we live in a world where media messages drive us to consumption without thinking of the consequences. And I loved in that one section, you know, with regard to trade-offs, mm-hmm. I loved in that one section with Wendell Berry and Terry Blanton this idea of price and cost. Mm-hmm. And we're told that this is cheap fuel, this is why we want to use coal. But when we talk about price and cost, right, then it's a whole different can of worms. Well, when you zoom back a little bit and look at the total externalized costs, that makes for, in almost every chapter of the book, of, of oil and food and water, the genuine, the true costs have been so disappeared for everyone, including public health, right. that we're not really looking at the true mm-hmm. uh, cost of things. Right. And by design, I think, for yes. you know profit Absolutely. at the end. Yeah. Yeah. We've got to get to New Orleans because I love, (laughs) I absolutely love uh, Jane Holy, who instinctively grounds her work in socially and emotionally engaged eco-literacy. And she talks about this rethinkers group that she's got, that she started. And I love this. The students call themselves the rethinkers and have proven to be unusually effective at the work of rethink. Kids Rethink New Orleans Schools has attracted all kinds of media coverage. Yes. Yeah, what a miracle worker she is. Well, you know, she had the audacity to retire. Oh, uh, no. and, uh, and so someone new has, has taken that place. And she, the new person whose name I can't think of at the moment, I've not yet met her, is coming out with a couple of students because we're going to do a seminar in June on eco-literate, and uh, many of the people who are portrayed in the book are going to be present. We're going to do a, a four-day residential 
seminar in at San Domenico campus. So the insight that she had was to engage the whole community in a healing process uh, of reflecting on what happened to them and instead of blaming, to really shift back and practice thinking about how their own behavior and how the school operated was contributing to the problem and how they could become the solution. That's a very powerful lesson to shift from blame-placing to problem-solving. Yeah, there's no whining. There's right. solution-based thinking, right. and I love that. And I, what I also thought was interesting was that the rethinkers followed up with a report on students' perceptions of post-Katrina public schools based on a survey of more than 500 students, and among their findings – students felt least safe and secure in schools with security guards. Mm-hmm. Whoa, isn't mm-hmm. that eye-opening? And, of right. course, they also, getting back to the food mission of our program, they gave the lowest possible rating to school food. And, you know, from a dietitian's perspective, what could be more important than having yeah. the nourishment, the fuel, so that we can reach our full potential? The other component was that only 62% of students on average felt that teachers were dedicated to and liked teaching children. Right. And I thought that was quite sad. That's heartbreaking. You know, many of those kids said they didn't know that a school could have toilet paper or running water until they were relocated to Houston. So wow. it, it was devastating feedback. And yet here this process of engaging them was regenerative and empowering. Zenobia, who collected the stories for this book? Well, we searched. Lisa and I and Dan all scanned for these stories, and we talked to a lot of people, and sometimes we went like, well, yes, we think this is a story. Sometimes we would go to conferences or something. I went to a Rainforest Action Network awards dinner in San Francisco, and Terry Blanton was speaking. We worked closely with the Oakland schools, and Tony Smith, who's portrayed in the book, was a hero. I think Lisa found the people in Anthony, New Mexico online. We had met the Rethinkers previously at a conference, so we thought that focusing on oil and coal and food and water would give us a big frame. And we were one of the founders of the Straw Project, so we knew about that project intimately. So anyway, we just asked the universe to point us to some people. Well, you've got a marvelous collection, and I'd like to suggest that this be volume one with (laughs) more stories, more gems to follow, because we need examples of how to get back in protecting the earth mode. And our time is up, Zenobia, and I'm sorry to end that, but I want to thank you for being my guest. We've been speaking with Zenobia Barlow. She is the executive director and co-founder of the Center for Eco-Literacy and co-editor of Ecological Literacy, Educating Our Children for a Sustainable World. We are talking about her latest book with Daniel Goleman and Lisa Bennett called Eco-Literate, How Educators Are Cultivating Emotional, Social, and ecological intelligence and i want to make sure everybody knows about your beautiful website oh, it's simply www.ecoliteracy.org you are based in berkeley california i have a small piece that i wrote for your section on improving school lunch which i'm very proud and honored to be a part of your website has been and remains gorgeous 
a wonderful resource for teachers, for parents, for anyone who cares about the earth and our children. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And again, I want to thank you, Zenobia, for being my guest and for being a part of such a beautiful, enriching center. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. 